All right, so uh, I took a break from the PowerPoints this week. We're going to do, uh, for the next three weeks, we're, we're starting to narrow down our study on discipleship. And I'm, I'm, as we do that, my goal has been to start with the very broad truths of discipleship in Scripture and then focus in on some of the very specific things of discipleship. And so we're kind of coming to the end of that, and we're going to end it... Um, and our study on discipleship with the pragmatics of how you do it. And so I have deliberately and intentionally left the pragmatics of making disciples to the very end. Because unfortunately, that's where churches usually start, but they don't spend much time actually looking at the character, the life, the calling of a disciple. And uh, what we end up doing is just reproducing people who aren't very spiritual, but who do a lot of busy stuff. This morning, we're going to be in John chapter 15. I love this passage because it really gives for the church what we are ultimately to be about. And that's Christ. For all of you NFL fans, you know that football season's coming up. Um, I like football. I'm not a huge football fan, but, uh, but I do like watching it. And if you know anything about the NFL, they've, they've made rules, such as the salary cap, to try and uh, make the league competitive. So if a team has a huge high-dollar player, and he's taking up 80% of their amount that they're allowed to spend on salaries, then that means the rest of the team has to cut that 20% up between themselves. And it's a way that the league implemented on, on all the teams to try and make it fair and give all the teams a shot at the big dance. And so it was a business decision is what it was. And, uh, and it works. Some teams, they'll, they'll start getting better players and they'll get better and better. They'll get to the Super Bowl and then they lose them. And, and it just kind of is one and done is the pattern if you follow football. But if you follow football, there's also been a pattern of, of one team, whether you like them or hate them, that has kind of defied what the league has tried to do, and it's the New England Patriots. Um, and Tom Brady and Bill Belichick. They, uh, in the last 18 years, they've been to nine of the Super Bowls, half of them, which is unheard of. And of those nine, they won six, which is more than anybody else in all of history. And there's a reason, I think, that I heard this this week, and I gave it thought, I looked it up, I did some research, and it's true. There's a reason, I think, that they're so successful. Found an article that talked about Tom Brady, who's arguably the best quarterback that's ever lived, and yet there's 43 people who are paid more than Tom Brady in the NFL. That seems astonishing to us, because usually the best player gets the biggest salary. I found, let's see, six salary... Um, brackets that listed the top five players for each one of these brackets, and Tom Brady was not in, in one of them. Let me read the different brackets to you. NFL players who will be paid the most, and this was in 2018 last year. Tom Brady wasn't among the top five. Players with the largest base salaries, he wasn't in the top five. Players with the largest average annual salaries, again, not in the top five. Players with the largest salary cap hits. Players with the largest contracts. Players who have contracts with the most guaranteed money. He's not in a single one of those. Here's what this article said about him. Brady signed less lucrative contracts to keep his team competitive. 
The Washington Post said this, football had become his religion. Now, I'm not endorsing that. It's idolatry. But that's his passion. That's what drives him. It's his vocation. It's what gives his life meaning. And it says this, that Brady had voluntarily become something of a bargain for the Patriots, and he has restructured his deals multiple times to help the team's budget. Why? So that they could go get other quality players. So to be fair, Brady should be making far more than he does. I don't grieve for Brady. He makes plenty. (laughs) But according to the league standards, he could make far more than he does, but he has famously given the Patriots a discount so that the team can spread money to other people. Now, the principle is this. This is what I heard this week that got me thinking about what I was already going to preach about. Why, why would he do that? Well, for Brady, his, his focus is football's not a business, it's a game. And as a game, it's to be won. That's why you play. You, you play to win. Paul said something similar. It's a principle in Scripture. Paul said something similar. I discipline my body. I bring it under subjection. Why? So I might win the prize. See, there's a focus in anything we do. And that focus can be easily distracted. We can be easily turned away from it to other things. It's what you see in professional sports. It's become incredible, these salaries and endorsements these men are getting. And they're becoming less and less competitive. Happens in the spiritual life as well. There's something in Tom Brady's example that we can, as a church, be reminded of scripturally. And so I ask you, church, why are we here this morning? Why did you get up and come? Why did why do we do this week after week? What's our passion? What gives your purpose in, in coming meaning? I wrote down some of the things that I know are, are common, and they're not bad in it of themselves. It's to make connections with one another, right? We desire relationships, and there's a biblical place for relationships with one another. The Lord works through the body. I get that. Is it to have a social place for us to gather? Is it to have a good environment, perhaps, for our children? I desire that for my kids. I want kids around my kids who are like-minded, whose parents are pursuing the same things I'm pursuing. Not a bad thing. Some churches really focus on filling seats, and so they structure a service to fill seats. But what is the purpose of the church? Why did you come? Ultimately, if it was not so that you can meet with Christ personally, we're missing out. And your life will soon become dry. It will become burdensome. You will find yourself, like in Isaiah 40, needing strength and renewal. Christ is why we come. And if our purpose as a church is not to connect people ultimately with Him, but only with each other, we're missing it. It's just another social club ultimately. And I don't want that. So we're going to look at John 15. If you want to read with me, here's what Jesus said. Verse 1, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch of mine that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, 
and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers. The branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. And by this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. Let's stop there. We're going to look at three points real quickly, and and the third point is is my focus. It's, It's one message this morning. Next week and then the week following, we're going to look at four different things, two sides of the same coin, of how we actually abide in Christ. Next week, we're going to look at what Jesus said in here, the word and prayer. What role does the word and prayer have in your life? Following that, we're going to look at how do we come back to abiding in Christ if we haven't been, and that's repentance and confession. The role that those two things have in a Christian, not the lost, but in a Christian. So We're going to look at those four things over the next two weeks. Today, we're simply going to consider... What does it mean to abide and why? So Jesus in this parable identifies, it's it's a metaphor, okay? So we need to identify some some things about the parable that Jesus is trying to communicate to us. So through the story, he's communicating truth through picture, through story. And there's four characters that he identifies, the vine, the vine dresser, fruitful branches, and unfruitful branches, Let's consider that real quick. Verse 1, he says, I am the true vine. So Jesus identifies himself as the vine, as the source of life. If you know anything about farming, anything about growing anything, it's the vine, it's the tree trunk that has life in it of itself. As, As the roots spread out through the soil, bring nourishment, it gives growth to the rest of the plant. The vine is the source of life. It's the vine... That, that flows through every other part of that entity. So Jesus is identifying himself as the vine. It's very powerful, especially if you know much about the Old Testament and the Jewish audience that Jesus is talking to. This is important, okay? Turn with me real quick. Keep your place here in John 15, but turn with me to Isaiah chapter 5. Now, th- I'm, we're going to look at two scriptures briefly, but there's a lot that we could have looked at to establish the same truth. In Isaiah chapter 5, beginning in verse 1, here's what Isaiah says, Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones. He planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it. He hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall be not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. And verse 7 sums it up. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. 
What was the fruit he expected out of them? He looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed for righteousness, but behold, an outcry. So in this passage, it's clear that the point I want you to see is this, that God looked at Israel, who he called his vineyard, and he looked for his vineyard to produce certain fruit. And when he looked at them to produce it, what did he find? Wild fruit. He didn't find what he should have found. Go over to Jeremiah, the next book. Jeremiah the prophet preached around 150 years after Isaiah. Jeremiah chapter 2, in verse 21 and 22. Nothing had changed in 150 years with Israel and Judah. Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 21, here's what Jeremiah says, Yet I planted you a choice vine, holy of pure seed. How then have you turned degenerate and become a wild vine? Though you wash yourself with lye and use much soap, the stain of your guilt is still before me, declares the Lord. So the point is, when God looks at man and expects to find fruit, he doesn't find it. Even in his chosen people, they, de- they turn degenerate. What does the gospel then reveal to us? What happens in the nature of the gospel in this, this experience we have? Well, God sends his son so that no longer is he looking to us to find righteousness. We're looking elsewhere to find righteousness. And that's Christ. So when Christ in John chapter 15 identifies himself as the vine, what's he saying? Look, I am the righteousness that you were supposed to be. God looked to you, the vine, and didn't find what he wanted. I'm the vine now. I am the source of righteousness. That's a powerful statement. The Jews would have understood that. But that's what the gospel does. It turns our eyes away from ourself, our own righteousness, and it turns it to the one who truly has righteousness, who can bear the fruit that God expects from us. Paul said it this way in his letters, Christ is our righteousness. He's our sanctification, and so on. And so that's, that's the first character we're introduced to in this metaphor, I am the true vine. And then in verse 1 in John 15, he goes on and identifies the second. And my father is the vine dresser. So the vine dresser is said to do two things in John 15. One, he removes unfruitful branches. And two, He prunes the fruitful branches so that they bear more fruits in verse 2 and verse 6. Again, you could also see that in Isaiah. He set up the vineyard. He plowed its ground, right? He set up a hedge. He protected it. The vine dresser does everything he can, both for and in the plant itself, so that it would produce what he hopes it to produce. That's the vine dresser's job. The third group that we're identified to is the fruitful branches. Look at verse 5 in John 15. I'm the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. And then verse 6, if anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch. He withers. So the third group, fruitful, fruitful or fruit-bearing branches, you could say, are true disciples. Okay, Now, branches are not the vine. They're the growth of the vine. The whole existence of the branch is to hold and bear fruit. Did you realize that? The reason branches exist is to bear the fruit of the vine. 
It's why we exist. It's the vine that gives the branch growth. It's the vine that gives the branch energy, life, everything else. So consequently, the branches who are truly grafted in and have the life of the vine flowing through it, those branches will bear fruit. So that's the picture of a truly born-again person, the branch. It's the person who truly has the life of Christ in him. Otherwise, you can't really say he's been born again. If there's no spiritual life in him, there's no spiritual birth in him. The fruitful person, if he's alive in Christ, if he's been born of Christ, will bear fruit because it means he's connected to Christ. Jesus said it this way, hey, the, the amount of fruit that my disciples bear may vary. Some will produce 30, some 60, some 100 fold. But the thing every branch that's truly in Christ has in common, they bear fruit. There will be some kind of fruit representing the life flowing in them. They all bear fruit. So that's the metaphor for the third group. Fruit-bearing branches are true disciples indeed. It's, it's a simple metaphor that depicts what discipleship's about. The fourth group, the non-bearing, non-fruit-bearing branches. They're identified by Jesus, as we read, as those who, like branches, are connected to the vine, but the evidence that they're not of the vine, that the life of the vine is not flowing through them, there's no fruit. If the life of the vine were flowing through them, there would be something, but there's nothing. We, it doesn't take long in eastern New Mexico here to walk around in the wild and see branches stuck to a tree that are completely dead. They appear to be part of the tree, but it's evident the life of the tree is not in them because they're just dead. Happens quite often. So what's the vine dresser do? He cuts them off, piles them up, and waits for them to be burned. Now this is a scary metaphor, okay? It's, it's an unsettling metaphor. Some people try and take it that these are Christians who just aren't bearing fruit, so God's taking them to the woodshed, so to speak, to discipline them. That's not it. It's not it. Never in Scripture are, is the language of judgment, like it's here, used of a believer. Discipline is used of a believer. And it actually says that they are not in him, whoever does not abide in me. So they're somehow connected to the vine, the tree, whatever, but they're not in it. Now this is true elsewhere in Scripture. We see, for instance, Matthew 7, if you want to turn over to Matthew 7 real quick. There are many people who associate with a church, who associate with Christians. Kids, for instance, um, may have Christian parents. And so kids come to a church and they associate with the church, with, with other believers, even if they're not born again yet. There's so many people who, one way or the other, are connected superficially, but not truly, to Christ. Matthew 7, 15 and following, Jesus said this in His great sermon on the, on the mount, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruit. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So again, we have this farming analogy. They'll, they'll have a kind of fruit, but not the righteous fruit that Christ produces. Every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Same exact phrase we find in John 15. And clearly here it's about people who don't know the Lord. They're false prophets. 
Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who's in heaven. So it's not about necessarily what we profess, although that's paramount. It's what we do with our profession, ultimately. What are we doing? Are we bearing fruit of our profession? On the day, verse 22, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, do many mighty works in your name, and then he'll declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So, it's clear that this is a fourth group, and Jesus put it in this parable for us to have to consider. And this is, I think, especially true in America. Uh, in other countries where it costs more to be a Christian, it's, it's more difficult to hide out in the church and not be a Christian, if you know what I mean. In America, it's easy. And churches, unfortunately, make it easy for people to come in amongst them and just feel quite comfortable. Now, I'm not out to just to rip everybody. But at the same time, if you don't know the Lord, I don't want you to feel comfortable here. I want you to come to faith and be born again and then have the peace of God. But I want you to be unsettled in your sin because it's separating you from Him. I want you to deal with that. Christ removes that enmity and gives you peace. So it's not my intent to make you just feel comfortable, although I welcome all who would come. So the last thing is we've already kind of identified in this parable, the fruit that Jesus is looking for is righteousness. We saw that in Isaiah 5. That's the fruit of Christ, the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That's the fruit that in this metaphor Jesus is talking about. For those who connected to Christ, Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit will be a part of you, some 30-fold, 60, 100-fold, whatever it is. But moving on, the key truth, okay? Second point here, the key truth that Jesus is telling us as disciples is this. Branches don't bear fruit by themselves. Seems simple, but if you're honest with your Christian experience, we can know this truth analytically. Hey, yeah, it makes sense. Branches don't bear fruit by themselves. But we practically live our Christian life as though this weren't true. It hits home. It hits home with me. Branches can't bear fruit. The vine's life and energy in the branch bears fruit. So unless there's a real connection with branch and vine, no fruit. What's the, what's the parallel truth? What's the spiritual truth Jesus is getting at with us? It's this. Disciples can't bear fruit on your own. Even as Christians, you can't bear your own fruit. Unless you have a real connection daily with Christ. So now I'm speaking, I'm moving into discipleship. What does a fruitful disciple look like? What does a fruitful disciple have to do? What kind of work do you have to be involved in to bear fruit? You just have to abide. That's all. That's all Jesus said. The branch sticks to the vine, bears fruit. It's so simple and yet, we don't really practice and live this way. It, it demonstrates we don't really believe that. It's an interesting thing as you study the Gospels. In the first three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, what this truth essentially is, is justification by faith alone. Okay, We are justified, we're declared righteous by faith alone in Christ. We don't have a righteousness of our own. To produce. We don't have a righteousness of our own to offer. 
to declare us, hey, you're okay, but none of us can declare that. Righteousness is by faith in the righteous one, Jesus. That's really essentially what this doctrine is sailing, telling us at its core. In the first three Gospels, that truth is laid out everywhere. But here in John, John presents it to us in a much more mature, robust way. He presents it to us in a way where, hey, you can know the doctrine of justification by faith, but are you experiencing what that will do in your life? That's the difference that John presents to us in a fuller sense. There are so many Christians who know doctrine in and out. Man, they are the best of theologians when it comes out to parsing verbs and everything else. But when you look at the experience of their life and what they're actually producing, man, they're barren, they're cold, they're dry, they're dead. You guys have been there. I mean, one of the things that that was a motivation for us at Waypoint when we planted two years ago was the bride of Christ is just falling flat and stale. There's this this status quo that exists. And we want renewal. Well, church, here's the key to renewal. You need to have a living connection with Christ. Not just know that you need to have a living, living connection. You actually need to connect with Christ. Because a branch cannot bear fruit if it doesn't. That's the truth Jesus wants us to get. And it's simple and yet so difficult. A disciple, as we've seen in our previous studies, is a follower. Here's a good definition. A disciple is not above his teacher, Jesus said. But everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. Now Jesus used that word, like his teacher. He doesn't say the disciple will will know all about what the teacher says and teaches. There's a pattern of life that Jesus says the disciple takes on. He will be like his teacher. Likeness to the master is what a true disciple is. So the other reality that this presents, we touched on just a minute ago, there are many associated in some way with Christ, but the likeness of Christ is absent. I like what Francis Chan said to this point. You guys have read Francis Chan. I like how he said it. He said, the whole point of being a disciple of Jesus is to imitate him, carry on his ministry, and become like him in the process. Yet somehow many have come to believe that a person can be a Christian without being like Christ, a follower who doesn't follow. How does that make any sense, he asks. Here's what he says, so good. Many people in the church have decided to take on the name of Christ and nothing else. This would be like Jesus walking up to those first disciples and saying, hey, would you guys mind identifying yourselves with me some way? Don't worry. I don't actually care if you do anything or change your lifestyle. I'm just looking for people who are willing to say they believe in me and to call themselves Christians. Now, when put that way, it's pretty clear. That's an absurd thing. But man, when you press it home with people, hey, how is Christ being reproduced in you? How's your relationship with Him? Is What fruit is going on? What activity of God is going on in your life? What do you, what do, you do for you this week? It's silence. You hear the crickets chirping. What does that tell me? What does that tell us as, as Christians? We're not engaging and interacting with Him week in and week out. There's no abiding going on. 
Man, when it's months and months and months before we can say, wow, you know what God did for me five months ago? There's something wrong. The abiding is not happening. And consequently, our life is drying up spiritually. So Jesus is after likeness. How is likeness produced? Connect yourself with Him. Here's the key and my third point to fruit bearing. Abiding. This is what I want to talk about for the rest of the morning. The word abide literally means to dwell, to remain, to continue, to camp out, if you will. I've been talking to Mike and Micah. They like camping. They love camping. Well, you camp out, right? What do you do when you camp out? You go, you find your spot, you pitch your tent, and boom. That's what it means. Where do we camp out? Where do we abide? In me, Jesus said. The location is in Jesus. So to answer the questions I posed to us at the beginning, we've already answered it, but why are you here this morning? Why did you wake up and come to church? If it was for any other reason primarily than meeting and abiding with Jesus, you're not here for the right reason. That doesn't mean you can't repent and have the right reason and Jesus won't talk to you still. Yes, He will and He can do that. We're going to look at that in a couple of weeks. All the things and all the reasons and, and ministries and all the stuff we do as a church might be needed, might be good, but church, if abiding is not happening, we are just like busy little ants that are lifeless and ministry will become a burden to us rather than a joy. And we'll get burned out in the Christian life. And we'll start wondering, God, where have you gone? And he'll say, where have you gone? I'm here. You're getting busy with your life. You're filling it full of stuff. Maybe good, maybe not good. But it's so full, there's no abiding happening in me. If this is true in John 15, you can do nothing apart from me. Then church, how does that truth structure how you should structure your life? What does that tell you your day should look like? Because it will transform most of us. If we can do nothing apart from Him, then the very first concern I should have when I wake up is to connect with Him. Right? Because the, the worst thing that could happen is for me to get out of bed, get breakfast, get going to work, and never meet with Jesus. There's not going to be a single fruit born in your life that day if you don't meet with Him. Now, I'm not saying you have to have a two-hour devotional. In fact, I love what George Mueller, you've heard me quote George Mueller a lot. One of the most godly, most spiritual men you could ever study his life. He would get up in the morning when he was a young Christian, even, even I think he said it was 10, 15 years into his walk. And man, he would, he would read scriptures for two hours. He would pray. I mean, he would get up at four or five in the morning and wouldn't come out of his office till seven or eight. And you know what kind of spirituality was being produced in him? Legalism. But you look at what he's doing. Wow, no, he's reading his Bible. He's praying. He wasn't meeting with the Lord, though. Those are just religious activities he was doing. And he recognized it. So he pulled back and he said, I'm just going to read one verse. 
It's not about how much I read. I just want to read one verse, and I'm going to sit and meditate on that verse until the Holy Spirit communicates the truth to me and meets with me. Sometimes he'd be in his office for five minutes before the Spirit would visit his heart, communicate truth to him, meet with him. He'd get up and he'd start his day. You see that? It doesn't have to be a long, drawn-out thing. Some of you I know have very busy lives. You still need to meet with Christ. You still cannot bear fruit if you don't. That's true for you. If you have a busy life, then come to, come to the Lord this way. Lord, you know I only have 15 minutes. Would you be faithful to meet with me in that 15 minutes? Would you be faithful to fill me with your Spirit this morning before I start and communicate your living Word in my heart so that I can meet the day? Can you do that? Yeah, we can. But we usually don't. You can't do anything if you don't abide in Jesus. That is the most important point we as disciples can, can know. Bef this is why I wanted to teach on this before I teach the pragmatics. You see how dangerous it could be if we learn all these methods and things to produce disciples. If we're not meeting with the Lord, you know what we're producing? Little legalistic kids. That's all we're doing. We are not reproducing Christ in people. We're just pumping out robots who can take up religious duties and do them. That's all we're doing. If there's not a living connection going on corporately and individually, no discipleship's happening in a biblical sense. Not a fruitful discipleship. To be fruitful in ministry, to be fruitful in living, to be fruitful and influential in evangelism and sharing the gospel with people, I have to be abiding in Jesus. And if I'm not abiding in Jesus, there won't be that fruit. So am I abiding in Him? Am I connecting with Jesus during the week, during the day, during Sunday morning worship? Do I seek to camp out, to dwell upon, to remain in Him? That's what it comes down to. But I want to unpack this just a little bit. Let's consider who Jesus is, why you'll see the fruitfulness is from Him, and why the abiding in Him is so important. Who is Jesus? We're told in the Scripture He's the incarnate one. What's that mean? Well, Jesus being the incarnate one, we see God's power and His attributes perfectly united in both deity and humanity. So by abiding in Jesus, we have all of God's power available for us to walk with. Because it was perfectly united in Jesus, connecting to Him, it will be perfectly formed in us. Jesus is said to be the obedient, the righteous one. We saw that last week. Christ lived a perfectly surrendered and obedient life to the Father, sinless in every way. He was the author of our faith, Hebrews tell us. So by abiding in Christ, we too can have a life perfectly dependent and surrendered on the Lord, obedient to the Father. Jesus was the crucified one. He died both for sin and to sin, for it and to it. That is, its power and presence might be removed in us. So by abiding in Jesus, we're freed from, his power, from sin's power. How many of you have indwelling sin that you struggle with? You don't have to tell me what it is. I do. How many of you have been so discouraged in your walk that you keep going back to it over and over and over and over? You know what your problem is? You need to connect with Jesus in it. You need to let Him meet you there, and then He'll overcome it. That's how sin is overcome in our life. 
By abiding. Not by doing, but by simply abiding with Jesus. He's the crucified one. When you connect with Him, you'll be crucified to that sin. And that sin will be crucified to you. It's power and dominion broken. Jesus is said to be the resurrected one. He was raised so that death no longer has dominion. The death He died, we're told in Scripture, He died once for all so that now He lives to make intercession for us. So... What does that mean for us? Abiding in Jesus, we now have God's resurrected power and life in us so that in our bodies we can serve and live to Him. Our bodies are dying, but Paul said this, He'll fill you with life and power so that you can still serve and worship Him in this body. It's a new way of living life. He's said to be the exalted one. Jesus sat down at the right hand of the Father to rule and to reign and to continue His program of salvation on earth. So by abiding in Jesus, we now also are citizens of a new kingdom. That's why I had Bo read the scripture out of Revelation 21. Paul said, we are citizens of heaven. That's where our citizenship is, not here. So we're also citizens of a new kingdom. We're under new management, if you will. And we've become laborers with Him in His kingdom. The kingdom of heaven in the hearts of people. We're joining with Jesus in that work, which was to seek and save the lost and then make disciples out of them. That's it. That's what Jesus' rule and reign is all about. His kingdom. By abiding in Him, you'll truly become a partner in it. Not just busy with activity. You'll truly be a laborer for the kingdom. Do you know the difference? You can be superficially doing stuff but not kingdom things. Andrew Murray summarized abiding in Christ. If you don't know, I, I, if you don't know, I like reading. I like to read. And I like to read a pretty broad range. There's, there's broadly what's classified the Christ life people. Andrew Murray was one of those. And He's so good. If you want to know what what does the fruitful spiritual person look like, read people like Andrew Murray, A.J. Gordon, Watchman Nee, others. Andrew Murray is probably the most famous. Here's what he said. Being in Christ, abiding in Him, means that the soul is placed by God Himself in the midst of this wonderful environment of the life of Christ. We are given up to God in obedience and sacrifice, filled with God in resurrection, life, and glory. The nature and character of Jesus Christ, His attitudes, His affections, His power, His glory, they're all the elements present in our life. It's the air we breathe. It's the life in which our life exists and grows. Everything that Jesus is, everything that Jesus does will be reproduced in you as you abide in Him. Just as the branch is connected to the vine and the life of the vine flows through that branch and all that life sprouts out, so it will happen to you when you abide in Him. And if you don't, you'll be that dead branch stuck to the tree. And everybody will look and say, I don't know. I don't know if the life of Christ is in Him. And they'll be right. So here's some questions, concluding, to ask yourself. Up to this point in your life, would you call yourself a follower of Jesus? And be honest. Because if you're not, I'm not pointing this out to like, you're not a follower. I want you to be a follower, a true follower. Look, church, I, I, I hid in the church, in the audience, 
for four full years before I was truly born again. It's easy to do. But you need to do a self-evaluation. What I call myself a true follower is the life and fruit of Christ really being manifested in me. Or am I just attending somewhere? Because here's what will happen. As much as I want to communicate and, and labor to show these things, eventually you'll get fed up with this church and you'll leave and you'll blame it on the church. Sometimes it is the church's fault. I'm not saying that. Sometimes it's my failure to communicate. I get that. I'm, I'm working hard to try and communicate truth and be better at it. But sometimes it's because you don't actually have a living connection with the Lord either. And so you're coming to church and you're just, you just kind of get discouraged with it. Why go? I mean, it's, it's not very much better than a government program. Evaluate your approach to walking with Jesus. Is it more of a convenience? Is it more something you schedule in during the week? Or is it something you wake up and say, man, I need the Lord's word today more than I need breakfast. That's what Job said. I recognize that if I don't meet with Christ, I'm a dead man today. Because when that begins to overtake our hearts, church, watch out, the Lord will use Waypoint big time. But not until then. Not until then. He's not going to bear fruit in a church that's not willing to surrender to Him and say, Lord, here I am. Nope. That will be defiled fruit, and He won't risk His glory on that. No way. If He sent Israel into captivity because they bore wild grapes, and He gave them over to judgment, He's not going to do it with us. Romans 11 says that. So what this passage really comes down to in a nutshell is this. Jesus was asked by a Pharisee, self-righteous man, what's the greatest commandment? It's to love the Lord your God. With all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind. And the second which is like it is to love your neighbor as yourself. Because in that, when you're loving the Lord, guess what? You're going you're to him. You, you don't lie to Him. You don't steal, you don't murder, you don't lust, you don't covet, you don't dishonor parents. You love them. You love the Lord. So do you desire Him above all else? Now here's the good news. If you're honest and you see in your heart, you say, you know what? I say I love Him and I say I worship Him, but according to this, I haven't really been loving Him. I don't present myself to Him. Here's the thing. The invitation is always there for you to do that. We're going to look at that in a couple of weeks. Repentance and confession is as much for the church as for the lost. And when you come surrendered to the Lord, you know what? Repentance is a, is a welcome thing because it's Jesus saying this, I'm giving you a second chance. And you say, I'll take it. It's mine. <laughs> That's repentance. Say, Thank you, Lord, because I failed. And I fail miserably. But I'm confessing that, and I'm turning from it, and I'm taking your offer of grace. It's mine. In closing, I want you to do a survey with me just quickly. If you know the Scriptures, the story of the Scriptures from beginning to end is a story of God wanting to abide with us. Did you know that? God created Adam, and we're told in the text how, how it's translated 
There's, there's the land of Eden, and then God made a garden in Eden. And he placed the man in the garden. And, and most English Bibles translate it to, to work and to till the ground. Okay? Now what's interesting, and I'm not going to necessarily say this is how we should interpret it, but those words used to cultivate, to, to work, when you get later on in the Torah, it's used to serve and to worship. That's how those same words are transferred, translated. Conceptually, just think of this. What if God made the Garden of Eden as a place for man to come worship the Lord? What do we find God doing in the Garden with Adam? Walking, talking, fellowshipping. What if that's what the Garden was for, was to worship God, to meet with Him, to dwell with Him, to abide with Him? And then that was lost when He sinned. The rest of Scripture, what's God doing? Well, He calls Abraham, says, hey, go to a land that I'm going to tell you. Why? Because I'm going to make my name dwell there. I'm going to call and form out of you, Abraham. I'm going to call millions and millions of people. You can't count how millions of people. This land will be my land, and I'll be there with you. Abraham obeys. We know the story. They go into slavery. What's he call Moses to do? Hey, deliver my people out of slavery and take them where? to land so that they can worship and serve me. That's what Moses told Pharaoh, right? Worship me. He brings them out of Egypt. Why? To give them a land. Once they're in the land, what do they start doing? Splintering off, worshiping other gods. So God gets them out of land. Ezekiel prophesies, hey, there's going to be a new heaven, a new earth. Here's the new temple. This is where God's glory is going to dwell. Right? But all the time, God's looking at man saying, man, we need a new vine. Because the fruit just isn't here. Sends Jesus and watch Jesus' new message. Same message, different focal point. Hey, now I'm the fruitful land. Abide in me. And then one day God will deliver a land, as we read in Revelation 21. I'll be with them forever and ever. It's a compelling argument to translate it that way. I'm not saying we should necessarily, but I am saying that's a theme in Scripture. God wants to dwell with us. Right now, we do it by faith, abiding in Jesus. Then we will do it by sight, and we'll see Him exactly as He is. Would you pray with me as I call the worship team up? Father God, I want to ask, Lord, for our church that You would encourage us. Father, even if this morning we've been convicted Father, you convict us so that we would come to know the good that you have. In fact, the rest of John 15 that we didn't read, you want us to abide so that our joy may be full. Father, the church is so busy. It's so distracted. It's busy with kingdom stuff so often that we even fail to simply abide in you. And so then we wonder, why is this Christian life so difficult? Why is it so dry? Why is it so dull? It's because we're not connected to the life of it. What body can survive very long without its head? And yet you are said to be in Scripture, our head is the body of Christ. Father, would you bring us to a place where you, you cleanse our hearts, you, you make room in our hearts, for you to dwell in, that we would abide, 
that our joy would be made manifest, that we'd see, man, this is where joy in life is found in abiding in Christ, not in doing and busy stuff and worldly things. Christ is life. Christ is joy. Father, I know that that there's some here who don't have a real living connection with you. They've been associated with the church. Some way, somehow. Father, would you cause them to be born again and see their need for it? Would you draw them and bring their hearts to that place where they cry out to you for it? Where they wreck, when they're honest and they look at their life, they say, you know what? I've taken the name of Christ on, but I have zero fruit of Christ in me. And I've had zero desire to even fellowship with Him. Father, would you invade their life and show them the joy that you are, the life that you are, the forgiveness that you'll give them despite being that. Would you cause, as Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4, the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ to shine in their heart? Would they call out to you right now in their seat, Father, in faith? Would you save them, Father? For those of us who need to be renewed and just encouraged, Lord, do that work. Maybe maybe we're burnt out because we've been too busy and we've forgotten you. Fathers, we sing this song. May it just, these words of blessed assurance, the joy that Christ is mine. We'll just fill our hearts, Father, with joy and love. We thank you for, for meeting us here this morning in our weakness, Father. It's in Jesus' name we pray.